Heavenly Father, I just ask, Lord, for your presence in this room to be ever-present. God, I ask for your Spirit to do a work in this place. Father, we've been walking through this Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preached. And God, it seems like each and every week we come in here and... uh, the words from Scripture, the words right from Jesus, just penetrate right to our hearts. Each week we're challenged with kind of another step where Jesus raises the bar. So God, I pray and ask that You would open up our hearts, peel back the whatever may be guiding our heart and our mind from hearing Your Word. Help us to hear that. Lord, I know today You brought us here by Your nudging, by Your leading, by Your guiding, the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. Father, we're not here by accident today, and you have a message for each and every one of us. And so, God, I'm going to do my best to preach the word that you've prepared in my heart this week, but Lord, I know you can take that message so much further so that each and every person here hears a message directly from you. Lord, would you speak so personally that when we walk out of here, we know I heard from God. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Jesus said... I love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. This is the first and the greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. This morning, we're going to focus in on this idea of love your neighbor as yourself. In this setting, Jesus was being tested by the Pharisees. Now, most of us probably have heard that Scripture before. Jesus was being tested by the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time, and they're saying, Jesus, out of all the commandments, and they're saying, out of all the commandments in the Old Testament, which is the greatest? And so they're basically asking Jesus, hey, out of some 600-plus commandments, which one are the greatest? And Jesus just looks at him and says, it's pretty simple. Love God with all that you are. And love your neighbor as yourself. I want to focus on this idea of loving your neighbor. When it comes to having healthy relationships, as we've been talking about over the last few weeks, at the core of having a healthy relationship is learning to love our neighbor and what that means. If you want to have a healthy relationship with coworkers, healthy relationships with your children, healthy relationship with your spouse, healthy relationship with your neighbors, healthy relationship with your community, healthy relationships even with people who maybe don't like you, or maybe you're not so fond of them. At the core, it's learning this idea of how we love our neighbor. Now, I'm sure most people who were listening to this Sermon on the Mount believe they were good, loving people. I mean, the, the crowd that Jesus was preaching to would have been primarily a Jewish crowd, a crowd that considered themselves God-fearing people. But Jesus was about to show them that they fall far short far short of what he was really trying to get to in this most important commandment about human relationships. In our text today, Jesus elevates us to a new level. Now, we've been 16 weeks in Matthew chapter 5. And I don't know about you, but because I, I prepare these sermons every week, I feel like, oh my goodness, as you break this down a few verses at a time, Jesus just keeps raising the bar in our life. He keeps challenging us, step up. If you're going to live in my kingdom, it's a high calling. If you're going to be a Christ follower, there's a large calling to that. It's not an easy journey. We're going to see here today that God's people are to live a life of love that goes beyond normal human 
love that we have for friends or family. Let's look at our text today, Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. Today we close out Matthew 5 with this message. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you, going, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I think if we were to put this passage of Scripture into one summary statement, it would say, true love is when you love the unlovable. True love is when you love the unlovable. And I want to make note, you probably noticed we've been trying to do some things to elevate our social media experience and, and what we're doing as a church. And I want to encourage you to use hashtag MyCPLEX if you're into Twitter and Instagram or, or Facebook. It, what a great way to tell your friends, hey, I'm hearing a message, and here, I'm at this church, and I'm doing it. What a way to proclaim. And so we want to encourage you to use MyCPLEX as a hashtag for Centerpoint. How broad and inclusive is your love? I think it's a fair question that we would wrestle with as we look at this message from Jesus. How wide and inclusive is your love? Do you love everyone? Can you be honest with yourself? Would you admit that maybe you only love those who love you? Or maybe you love family and friends who you're close to. Maybe you love people in your church. But if we're honest, are there some people in our lives that you go, ah, I'd rather not interact with them. Not really sure that I love them. Jesus will establish in our text today that God wants our love to be inclusive, excluding no one. Now let me just say from the beginning, this passage is a tough one sometimes for me. I say sometimes because sometimes it depends on what day of the week it is. Or sometimes what hour of the day it is. But there are some people sometimes it's like, I don't want anything to do with them. I don't want to interact with them. I don't want to see them. I don't want to talk to them. There are some people when, their phone, when the phone rings, I don't want to talk to that person. I want to hit mute. I don't want to talk to them. And there are times, and if you talk to my kids, there's probably more times than I like when in the car, I don't necessarily love other drivers. And I'm sure some of you have that challenge at times as well. If we're honest with ourselves, this passage of Scripture we're called to love, it's a challenge for all of us. So let's dig in. I want you to first of all see the contrast in verse 43. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The first part of that statement, you shall love your neighbor, comes right out of the law in Leviticus 19. The Jews knew that the law required them to love their neighbor, but they typically wanted to find, quote-unquote, their neighbor according to their fashion. Someone include all their Jewish brethren. They went, well, I'm supposed to love my neighbor, then I'm supposed to love other Jews, as implied in verse 47. Others would only include jo Jewish brethren who literally lived near them. They'd say, well, yeah, I'm supposed to love Jews, but not all Jews, just the ones that are kind of in my community, on my street, in my area. That's my neighbor who I'm supposed to love. The Pharisees would limit that definition of neighbor to Jews who were living by the law as they interpreted it. So if they agree with me and how I interpret it, and they interpret it the same way, then we can be neighbors because we have a like mind in how we are living out the law. So love was limited in scope and excluded all others. 
The Pharisees, though, were known as extreme separatists who would have little to do with anyone outside their like-minded group. Some were even bold enough to add to the law a new requirement that you hate your enemy. You see, when you read the Scripture there in verse 43, and Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor. That's in Leviticus, but it says, and hate your enemy. You can find it nowhere in the Bible. You cannot find in the book of the law and hate your enemy. It was something that the Pharisees added in and said, well, hey, let's add a little bit of our own thinking into that. Now, of course, we would never do that kind of thing. We never add anything to the text or add anything to what Jesus tells us to do, but that's what they were doing. Um, you can see, for most Jews, their love was limited to family and friends and like-minded Jews. You're my brother, you're my sister. You're my mom, you're my dad. You're my cousin, you're my aunt, you're my uncle. I'm supposed to love you. You're in the Jewish community. I'm supposed to love you. They even felt justified in hating most others, especially in light of the way they had suffered at the hands of their enemies. See, the duty of love was restricted to very narrow circles. And they're like, if you live within this circle, I'll love you. If you're outside of that circle, the rest of the world was left out in the cold. They thought that they were living in obedience to the law and were pleasing God, and they thought we're earning eternal life in the way we're living. Jesus was trying to get them to understand. Remember, he's preaching his Jewish culture. And remember, Jesus is raising a bar and Jesus is changing their mindset. Jesus is trying to get them to understand that true love is when you love the unlovable. I have a concern when it comes to this idea of love. I'm afraid that too many church people who claim Jesus as Savior, who have stood before others and said, I accept Jesus as my Savior, enter the waters of baptism, receive the power of the Holy Spirit inside of them. I'm concerned that there's too many church people who have the same mindset as the Jewish and Pharisee people. I'm concerned that we call ourselves Christians but we love about at the same level that they were dealing with, and we're some 2,015 years or more later. I'm concerned that we're just like them. Oh, you don't think like I think? Oh, you don't have the same social class that I have? Oh, you're a different skin color than I am? Oh, you're a different political party than I am? Ouch, that one hurts. We do that to each other, though, don't we? Oh, you believe in that? You believe in this? You think this way? You think that way? Then I'm going to write you off. I don't want to interact with you. I don't have to do anything with you because you think and behave differently than I do. Or even, lo and behold, possibly we interpret Scripture a little bit differently. We understand it differently, and so we just say, I just don't have a relationship. We would never say, like they would say, oh, I hate them, and use such terminology, but we would just write them off and just ignore them. Jess Lair wrote a book called I Ain't Much Baby, But I'm All I Got. It's a great title of a book. And he talks of a survey taken by a psychologist amongst pious church people that he could find. He wanted people whose doctrine and theology were right. And they had real solid doctrine and theology about the Scripture, who regularly attended the church, who, who gave their money on a regular basis, tithing, um, their income, who are the kind of people that many would consider to be kind, the kind of Christian that most people want to be. The study pointed out some interesting things. In this book, he found that most of the pious churchgoers often had very little love in his heart. They followed the rules of going to church, of giving their money, of doing the right things, but when it came to love, they were not uh, showing that in their lives. He found that, in fact, discovered that the church person often had extremely negative attitude towards Jews, towards blacks, and towards poor people. 
survey didn't stop there, though. Lear points out that the really amazing discovery of the survey was the frequency of negative attitudes expressed by these pious church people toward their brothers and sisters in Christ who were part of their own fellowship. We have an attitude that I don't really want to participate with them. Or I won't be in a Bible study with that person. Or I won't serve on a ministry team with that person. Or if so-and-so's in that service, make sure I go to a different service. I'd imagine that some of us have experienced that before. We've probably experienced being shunned or being backs turned on. He's saying in a church, there's something wrong with that picture. There's absolutely something wrong with that picture that if in this place, love is for surely not shared from one to another with no boundaries. So whether then or now, Jesus drops a bombshell on the self-righteous people who feel that they are obeying God when it comes to the law of love. And I imagine right now, if you're willing to be open to the Gospel today, you're sitting here going, that's kind of a bombshell being dropped in my life. Because there's some areas of hate that I carry. There's some areas where I dislike people. There's some areas where I write people off. And we can see the contrast between love and hate that Jesus is talking about, but I want you to see His call for this all-inclusive love. Verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies. I mean, Jesus expands on this idea of neighbor to include anyone you come in contact, even an enemy, whether Jew or Gentile. You also see in 44 a pretty good description of what the enemy does. They will probably curse you, hate you, verbally abuse you, and persecute you. The word persecute refers to someone who won't leave you alone. They hound on you. They constantly attack your various ways that you're horrible and that you're terrible and that your thinking is wrong. How are you supposed to respond to an enemy? Jesus says you're supposed to love them. That's where I stopped and you almost had that thought, like, Jesus, did you fall off your rocker? I mean, be honest with the Scripture. We're allowed to wrestle. You mean, Jesus, when someone has hurt me, when someone has said wrong words against me, I'm supposed to love them? Yes. You mean, Jesus, when someone has treated me wrong at work, a boss is not treating me fairly, a, a co-worker is not treating me fairly, I'm supposed to love them? Yes. You mean at school, when I have school friends who are unkind and school friends who pick and tease on me? Yes, you're supposed to love them. How can you do that? That's got to be the question I think we ask. If Jesus says, hey, you're supposed to do this, then you would think He provides a way for us to do that. But we have to understand, what is this love He's calling us to? How is it possible? See, it's dependent upon the kind of love we're talking about. And the love in this Scripture is love known as agape love. We in America, in our English translation of Scripture, um, we use the word love. For, for every stance, and there's all kinds of descriptions of love. We use the word love in our homes and say, oh, I love you, honey, and then we'll turn around and say, I love my dog. And we use the same word. In Scripture, there's different words in this. This word does not refer to a friendship kind of love. This word does not refer to a family kind of love. It does not refer to a romantic kind of love. Jesus does not ask to be fond of, fond of our persecutors, liking our enemies as best friends. It's an agape love that chooses to, good, to do good to others even when they do bad to us. That's the call Jesus has here. And since Christian love is an act of will, Jesus has a right to command us to love our enemies. And the love of enemies is a love of action. How broad is your love? I mean, be honest with God, who knows your heart anyway? Who knows exactly what we're thinking about today? He knows exactly what we carried in this place today. 
Is your love nothing more than a typical human love, uh, which is limited to family, friends, and your church family? Is it limited to those who show you love? Jesus said our love's got to be much broader and inclusive than that. Look at what Jesus asked in Matthew 5, 46 and 47. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. Now, a pagan in definition is someone who is not a God-fearing person. A person who says, I'll do life on my own. I don't need God. What is Jesus saying here in these two verses? He asked two very tough questions. I think what he's saying is this, is if your love extends only to family and friends, then your love is no better than that of an unbeliever. It hurts to hear that. But that's what Jesus is saying. If your love only goes to family and friends, then maybe you should question and say, am I really a true believer? Am I really in Christ? If you and I are going to please God and manifest Christian love, we must love all people, even those who are our enemies and people who think differently than us and people who look differently than us. True love is when you love the unlovable. Now you may think that Jesus is going too far demanding our love for enemies. And quite honestly, I think that's a fair question and a fair thing to wrestle with. Hold a minute. Lord, you're telling me when people are evil to me, I'm still supposed to love them? Absolutely, yes. My dad used to always say, Brian, when people are wrong to you and treat you bad, kill them with kindness. You've probably heard that before. Kill them with kindness. That was what Jesus said. Just because someone's wrong with you, you kill them with kindness. But this is not anything new. In Exodus 23, 4 and 5, look what God commanded the Israelites. If you happen upon your enemy's stray ox or donkey, you must bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. Now, who in here has an ox or a donkey in their backyard? So we look at that and go, what does that passage exactly mean? Here's terminology for 2015. If someone who hates you, someone who has treated you badly, someone who has done wrong to you, if they have a problem, go and help them. If they have a flat tire, go change their tire if you can help them change their tire. If they have an issue at their home and you think, I can probably help them with that issue, then go and serve them and help them with that issue. Proverbs 25, 21 says, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat, and if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. In other words, go and do something physical for them. That is the love that Jesus is talking about here. When people hate you, go and serve them and love them. This teaching of Jesus shouldn't have been shocking. When we love our enemy, when we love the unlovable, we follow God's example. Jesus says in Verse 45, you should love the way he describes here that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. See, we expect a child to look and act like our parents. Most times if you put kids around their parents, you get to know them, you say, man, they look a lot like you or they behave like you. I've heard that one too many times with my son Luke where people say, man, he's like your twin. If you, amen, so amen. It's true. He looks a lot like me. He's a lot nicer than I am, so he probably got those traits from his mom. But most of your children have traits that are like you. They have physical features that look like you. And you would expect that when when they are your children, when they are your flesh and blood. However, it's very interesting. There are some studies out there about adopted children that says even adopted children who are not flesh and blood take on many of the character traits and the behaviors of the parents who have adopted them and still start to behave like them because of the influence of the mom and dad in the home. I think it would be right then to expect 
those who claim to be born again, who are children of God, to be like God and bear the moral resemblance of God as God our Father. What is God like? The Scripture says God is love. And in the last of verse 45, we see that God's love is inclusive, not exclusive. And that means we're going to love people who hate us and people who are different than us and people who are enemies. Jesus, as He makes the sun rise in the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust, even His enemies receive blessings and sunshine. God didn't say, oh, you're unrighteous, no water for your crops. God didn't say, hey, you're unrighteous and you're not going to get rain so your garden will be watered on. Jesus said, I want to send rain on both. I'll give sunshine to both. Romans 5.8 tells us that God loved us when we were His enemies. He loved us so much He sent Jesus to the cross. When we were enemies of His, He did something physical. That's agape love. Jesus brings out a contrast between love and hate, calls us to, to an inclusive love, a love that loves the unlovable. And Jesus says loving your enemies, there's rewards in that. Verse 46 says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? There's, a, there's an emphasis implying showing that uh, a love in God-like fashion, there's going to be some kind of reward with that. Proverbs 25.22 says that if you do good to your enemy, you will not only shame them, but also the Lord will reward you. I don't know what those rewards will be. I don't know if that's a future reward down the road. I don't know if that's a reward right now, right here. It, I think it quite could be a reward right here. Maybe you gain a new friend. Because you go and you love someone who's not been so loving to you. Maybe quite possibly the reward could be, I'm loving someone who's not been so loving to me, and they see the Father's love in me, and eventually they say, I desire the Father you, that you worship. And they come to Christ. And you get to be one who says, I helped someone cross that line of faith. What a reward that would be. As Stephen the deacon was being stoned to death in the book of Acts, he prayed for his enemies including Saul of Tarsus, and Saul ultimately became a believer. There have been many other examples down through the years of enemies being won over by Christian love. Christian love is inclusive. We love the unlovable, even our enemies. But in what ways are we love each other, including enemies? How do we do that? I don't think Jesus is going to say that and not show us how. Christian love is not emotion. Christian love, it's an action. It's, it's a meeting need action. Jesus mentions four things in our text, four ways to express love to our enemies. Now, I want you to stop for a moment. I want you to think of an enemy. If you can't think of one, ask God, God, who, who have I not been so loving towards lately? Maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a friend. Who, who is that person that when you're in a grocery store, if you see them coming down the aisle, you're like, oh, let me get over the other aisle. I don't want them to see me. Who is that person that when the phone rings, you're like, I don't want to talk to them. Get that person in your mind. Who's the person you're like, I'd rather not talk to them, rather not associate with them. If we're in the same room, I, I hope we don't cross paths. I hope they stay on that side of the room. I'm on this side of the room. Who is that person in your mind? And look at the text now. But look at it in the King James Version. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. I see four actions. I went back to King James next. I think it fully opens up that text right there. One action is this, bless those who curse you. Even though in the oldest Greek... Um, manuscripts of this particular text, we don't find exactly those words. You can see them in, in the book of Luke in chapter 6. 
You can see him in Apostle Paul in his writings in Romans chapter 12, 14. He says, bless them which persecute you, bless and do not curse. But what does this word bless mean? The word translated bless actually means to speak well of someone. When someone speaks words against you, you speak well of them. When you hear that someone has started a rumor about you and someone says, oh, they said so-and-so about you and it's a negative thought or negative comment, you don't reply with a negative comment. You reply with a blessing. Well, I'm sorry they said that. I really think they are with something that is a blessing, something that is positive. So next time someone curses you, remember Scripture, respond by blessing them. That's just, and just see what happens. The book of Proverbs says a soft answer turns away wrath. So how do we love? We love by speaking positive words about people. Action two, do good to those who hate you. Love must be demonstrated in action. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 12, 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Evil and hatred are powerful forces in this world. But more powerful than that is the love of God demonstrated in good works towards those who hate us. Being kind, going above and beyond to be kind to those who are mean. Look for an opportunity to bless. Now, and I'll tell you, a great opportunity to do that is when you see someone in a time of trial or need. Someone who hasn't been so close to you. Someone who's been mean to you. Someone who's been unjust towards you. You see them in a the hospital, send some flowers. You see they've lost a loved one, go to the funeral home. Drop off a meal. Write a nice encouraging note. When you do that in the middle of their tragedy, in the middle of their hardship, they're seeing the love of God. Number three, action three, is pray for those who persecute you. The highest good we can do for someone is to pray for them. When we pray for our enemies, we find it easier to love them. It changes our attitudes. You cannot hate a person and pray for them at the same time. It's not possible. The psalmist said in Psalm 66, 18, if I regard iniquity, which is hate in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Now hear that. If I harbor iniquity, hate in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Some of our prayers are stuck. They're clogged up like a drain because we're holding hate in our heart. And Jesus is saying, drop it all and pray for people. And if that's you're stuck, maybe the first prayer is, Lord, take the hate away from me so I can pray for people. But once you start praying for people, it's hard to speak negative against them, hard to speak ill will against them, because prayer starts to change things. Prayer starts to change people. Prayer will change the prayer and the person who's being prayed for. Of course, Jesus, I think, is our greatest example. I mean, get the picture in your mind. Here he is. He was never more kingly than when he was under the fire of persecution. His enemies are persecuting. They, they beat him. They spat upon him. Put the crown of thorns on his heads. They've whipped him. They stick him on a cross. And what does Jesus cry out in a prayer? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. I don't think any of us have ever been through that kind of persecution. I know I haven't. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. As Deacon Stephen was dying as a first Christian martyr, he asked the Lord not to actually punish the people who killed him. In Acts 7, in the 16th chapter of Acts, we read of Paul and Silas being falsely arrested, beaten, put in stocks in Philippian jail. Instead of cursing their enemies, they praised God in the middle of the prison. And instead of hating their enemies, they prayed for them, and the Philippian jailer was saved, him and his household. So next time someone mistreats you, What's your response? 
Is it firing off an email back to him? I can't believe you said da-da-da. Is it pulling out your phone and text? How could you treat me like this? Da-da-da. Is it telling all your friends? Is it getting on social media? Or is it stopping and saying, Lord, I just got to pray on this situation. I want to pray for them. Action 4 we see in verse 47, which is greet and speak to all. Jesus says, and if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. One expression of love is to give someone just a warm greeting. The word translate greet literally means to draw one to, to oneself. And so you see that. In Middle Eastern culture, they would embrace and kiss each other on a cheek as part of their greeting. They'd express a kind word of greeting. In Far Eastern culture, they greet with a bow. As they come to each other, they bow. It's a greeting. In our Western culture, we greet with a handshake or now a fist bump or now a hug. It's becoming more normal in our culture. Unlike the Pharisees, Jesus clearly implies on verse 47 that we should expand our greetings beyond just family and friends, expand it to all people, even to the people who are unloving, as an act of kindness, an act of love, is just to greet people. You know, one basic psychological need is that a need of significance. When we do not get do not greet someone, we're making them feel insignificant. When you ignore someone you purposely don't greet, and Jesus is saying, go ahead and greet people. What would it be like in your workplace? What would it be like in your school? If you're the one that makes sure as you come in your day of, of, of work, that you walk through, hi, how you doing? Hello, good to see you. Kind of being that champion of just greeting people and making them feel good. See, Jesus didn't limit His greetings and conversations to the religious Jews. I mean, you stop and think about the life of Jesus. He ain't drink with tax collectors, the so-called sinners. Uh, he would speak to the. He would even speak to the to the despised Samaritans. He was even even found with a Samaritan woman. She was astonished that Jesus, being Jew, would speak to her and gave her something to drink and gave her water. It's a greeting and spending time with people. This is especially surprising considering the fact that he knew her immoral life. He still said, "I'll come and spend time with you." Jesus was not one to limit his greetings to the attention of just the powerful and just the people who are influential in this world. He greeted everybody. And I love the fact in Scripture that Jesus greeted the children. He had time for the children. You remember the disciples when in one account, when they're like, Jesus, we got to go, we got to hurry, and they're trying to drag them along. Jesus is like, stop. Let the children come to me. Spent time hugging and loving the children. In the book of Mark, you see that recorded actually twice. What about you? Are you willing to warmly greet people, lovingly greet people, including those who are outside of your circle of influence? Now, I can understand that can be challenging for introverts, for people who are more shy. I understand it's hard. I'm not, I'm not the one to normally greet. But you understand when you do that, you're expressing the love of Christ, and maybe it is a prayer. Lord, I'm a little more introverted. That's how you made me. I'm a little more shy. But Lord, would you put in me the attitude to be someone who can greet someone, who can say hi to someone, who can be caring for someone. Could you imagine what the church would be like? Not just Centerpoint, but our church and other churches. If we had the mindset of being greeting a lot more. Now, we work hard around here and try to talk to our servants and our leaders about making sure you're greeting and you're being kind. But what if everybody took that on as their ministry? On Sunday morning, my ministry is to go in and greet people. My ministry is to go in and give hugs and give handshakes and be here early. You know, we live in a culture that tends to drag late. Oh, service starts at 10. I mean, I'll get there by 10.05, 10.20, and I'll get in there and hear a little bit of sermon and go home. Once if the mindset was changed in American church, you know what? Service starts at 10. I'm going to be there at 
Why 945? To get there and greet and meet and just love on people. If it wasn't just the preacher and the, and the elders and the servants, it was everybody took that mindset and said, I'm going to greet and meet and care, expressing the love of Christ. And I don't care what they look like. I don't care how old they are. I don't care if they have tattoos. I don't care if they have piercings and everywhere. I don't care what their clothes look like. I don't care what money status they are. And when they come in and when I see them, I'm going to greet them and meet them and love anybody. That's what the church is supposed to be. Not only in here, but also out there in our community. Christian love must always be our goal. True love is when you love the unlovable. And the unlovable are just people that we tend to judge and say, they're different than me. Unlovable are people who walk a different path than we walk. Jesus has certainly raised the standard of righteousness here. I mean, God demands a love that is inclusive, not exclusive. Our love should not just be talk. It's got to be expressed in action, even our enemies. It's not a normal human love. <coughs> it's a God-like love. And Jesus concludes now, as if He hasn't already challenged us enough, right? It's like, okay, fold the Bible, let's be done. He's challenged us. There's one more little verse He throws in there. And He says, be perfect, therefore your heavenly Father is perfect. Wait a minute, Jesus. You've given us enough in this chapter already. And you're going to close out with one little sentence that we could talk about forever? Does this mean that Jesus was perfectionist in the sense that He taught men they could reach sinlessness before death? I don't think that's what it's talking about. What does He mean? I think first of all, He's reaffirming this entire chapter of all the different things He's talked about. He's going back and reaffirming Him saying, I've given you a high standard to achieve. Shoot for it. Try to reach it. Do your best at it. Fundamental principle, though already given in 45, to be like God. The very goal of every, ch every child of God is to be like God. If God is loving all, then we should be loving to all. If, if, if God does good to all, then we should do good to all. If God is holy, then we should be holy. If God is perfect, then we should strive towards perfection. And you say, man, that's awful high standard. I think we have those standards in our lives, though. They're around us all the time. I mean, for example, on the football field, 36 inches is a yard. And if one day the football guys who want to mark the line say, oh, today let's just do 28 inches, there would be fights and arguments. It's 36 inches and that's a yard and that's what we're going to achieve. Or if you went to the store and you bought a gallon of milk and you went home and it's missing this much, you'd be going back to the store saying, I didn't get my whole gallon. It wasn't perfect because a gallon is four quarts because it wasn't perfect, you'd want that. Or, if you were buying bacon, and a pound of bacon, and it's 16 ounces, you went home and you put it on your scale, and it's not 16 ounces, you're probably going back to the store and saying, I would, because I was in Sam's Club the other day, it was $6 and something for a pound of bacon. I'd be like, give me my bacon, anything. If it doesn't measure up to what it's supposed to be, we'd be like, give it back. If, you have, if you're supposed to be giving a dollar to somebody, which is 100 pennies, and you say, hey, I don't really have the 100 pennies. I only got 88 pennies, but count that as a dollar. They'd be like, no, I want my whole dollar. We live at a standard around us in many different avenues where perfection is expected, and we expect it. And the Lord is saying, hey, there is a perfection level here, and God is saying, strive for it, go for it, give your best, because no one would be satisfied, satisfied with just a halfway obedience. I'm never satisfied with my children with halfway obedience. And I know most of you parents in here probably never be satisfied. When you tell your kids, hey, go upstairs and fold the laundry, and you go up there and that laundry basket's only been halfway touched, you're like, get up here and finish the job. 
We're not happy with halfway obedience in our homes. So why would God be happy with halfway obedience? The standard He raises is pretty high. How can we attain such a lofty goal? It is indeed impossible to love your enemies. It is possible only if you've been born again, you have the whole power of the Holy Spirit living inside you. You try to do it in your own strength, it's impossible. But once you know Jesus and you have the Holy Spirit living inside you, it becomes very possible. The first step to loving our enemy is to receive the love of Christ that He has for us. I mean, Jesus went to the cross to die for you when you were an enemy of the cross. And once we grasp that love and we understand His great love, then we can demonstrate and give that to other people. Romans 5.5 5 says the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And if you haven't received Christ, you don't have the Holy Spirit. Maybe today that's a call from God for you is you need to receive the love of God. You need to receive Christ's love. Maybe you've done that before. And today I ask you, get real serious for a moment. Open up your hearts. Who's that person or the people who you have a hard time loving? Maybe today is a day of repentance. Maybe today as we receive our communion and you're partaking in the cup and the juice, Maybe today is a day you're going to spend some time as you're thinking about the cross and you're going to sit in your seat and repentance. Maybe today repentance for you is I need to go kneel at the cross and you spend some time at the foot of the cross. Maybe repentance is I've got to tell somebody I need help. So as we continue in worship, I want to encourage you. If you want to need to receive Jesus Christ, you're like, I've never done that. I need to talk with somebody about that. I'm ready to do that today. We're prepared to help you on that path. Baptism water is ready. We would do that in a heartbeat. So as we continue in our service and worship, you want to talk about your walk with God, I'll be in the back of the room, just get up at any time, walk back there and say, hey, help me on this journey. Think of repentance. I need someone to pray with me. I need to repent. I need to share that. Then again, move the back of the room, do that. Maybe it's at the cross. Maybe it's in your own seat where you're sitting today. See, the kind of love described here is indeed difficult to practice consistently. But it must always be the target that we aim for. It's the target on the wall that we're going for. And when we miss the target, isn't it wonderful that we have a Savior that demonstrates His love through forgiveness? 